0: Hey folks, and welcome back to The Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are back with our series, Going Through the Life of Jacob with our scholar in residence, James Jordan. Here, Jordan's going to begin his thoughts on the beginning of Genesis chapter 28, verses 1 through 9, and the departing of Jacob. For more of our work in the book of Genesis, you can find our links in the show notes. We hope that you enjoyed this time of teaching, and as always, thank you for listening.
1: There was just one loose end from last time that I wanted to talk about, and I don't think I'm going to do it. I think we'll just get back to it later on, but I had said I would come back and talk about how the equitable enforcement of just laws is the only way to stop the spreading of brother hatred and feuding, and that the whole Jacob narrative as we previewed it last time with all of these conflicts and then conflicts between brothers, conflicts spreading out, uh, well, I guess we'll go ahead and talk about it, is setting us up for Mount Sinai. What you have is... And this continues to be a matter It's in the law. it would be interesting to, to study this whole theme through now that I'm more alert to it. But you have two brothers, in this case twins, which always highlights the conflict. And they're in conflict with each other. I remember one of Brenda's uncles saying that Brenda's father is one of eight sons, is it? He said, oh, when brothers fight, it's the worst thing in the world. Nobody fights as bad as brothers fight. Well, that's true because brothers are close to each other, and so when they get into a fight, maybe sisters fight, worse. There's an explosion, see, because you're always so close, you're in each other's way all the time. If you have twins, it's even worse. And archaic societies know this. They know that twins will fight, and so often twins are exposed when they're born. People say, I'll just get rid of these twins. We'll have another children." Well, why? Why are they concerned about that? Well, it's because this son has friends, and this son has friends, and this son has sons, and this son has sons. And the conflict that's between these two gradually spreads to their friends and spreads to their sons and gets worse and worse. Conflict spreads. And this is real true in the church. It sounds abstract to say conflict spreads from people to people, but it always does because you're always curious to know what's going on. If you know that two people are at odds with each other in the church, you get curious about it, and then you start taking sides. You may take sides before you know anything. You just automatically think, well, you know, this is, golly, look at this. These two guys over here, Bill, he's been trouble for years, so it's no question that Jacob's gotten into a fight with him. You already prejudge it. And then you say something to somebody else, and it spreads. It spreads all the way through. Conflicts. If two people get into a conflict, other people watch it. They get curious about it. They're drawn to it like moths to a light. And people will take up sides in it. And it spreads. It spreads in churches. Personal conflict spreads out until you've got feuding, And you've got social chaos. How do you handle that? Well, if it's within the family, if it's two sons, mother and father can deal with it. If you're living in a sheikdom, you can send one son over here like Ishmael. Ishmael can move out and live to the east to where he and Isaac can occasionally get together, but they don't have to have any conflict. But what if you've got a society of people that are living together and there's no place to go. Then you've got to figure out ways to resolve conflicts. Well, there's an incipient conflict in Genesis 27, where the mother is righteous, the father is unrighteous, one son is righteous, one son is unrighteous. Their conflicts. They don't really get resolved permanently. And we saw last time that Jacob has to bear those conflicts. And what happens with Jacob is he winds up with 12 sons. We have four different mothers, paired off in two groups of two. There's all kinds of dynamics there. There's all kinds of tension. The brothers wind up virtually murdering one of their other brothers. How do you deal with a society where this kind of thing is going on? Well, the way you deal with it is by having a visible, written law code that is strictly enforced. So if you trace this Conflict spreading out pattern, the new Esau's, the new bad sons, all the tensions and problems. If you trace it on down, you come to Mount Sinai and you find well, what happens after that. Well, then you've got Korah, Dathan, and Abiram saying everybody ought to be just as good as a priest. And you've got all these other conflicts that are going on and God kills people. He kills them over and over again for 40 years. Every time they stick their fist in his face he kills them. That's the hardest thing about church discipline because if you have one case of church discipline, you're going to have at least two more after it. You're going to have a second group of people who come and say, you didn't do that right. And you say, well, I'm sorry, but we're the elders here and we had to make a choice. And then they stick their fist in your face and you have to knock them down. And then you'll have a third group of people. It's never just one. Nice to know that going in so you're not caught up with it. Of course, Church is likely to blow up by the time you get to the third one. But there you are. God maintained absolutely strict justice for 40 years, no nonsense, until those people had become equitable in their temperament and become people who live under law and not in terms of their own feelings and passions. It took a generation, well, 40 years is really about two generations of people for that to happen. Now, so what we're moving to, as we get to Jacob's, Jacob has all these kids. He creates a nation. We're moving to nationhood. And in nationhood, in order to stop all this fratricide and rivalry and brother murder that's going on, you have to have a strict law system over it that's written down, that's taught to the people, the law says it's taught, and it's strictly enforced. It's enforced on the aristocrats as well as on the plebeians. It's enforced on the... Free men as well as on the bond servant. It's enforced on the homeborn as well as on the stranger. Over and over again, the law says all these things. You'll have the same law for the visitor in the land as you do for the native of the land. You'll have the same law for your slaves as you do for your freemen. Everybody's treated the same. Now, very few societies ever get to that point. Ours isn't. Look at how the President of the United States can get by with doing all the things that we would get put in jail for doing, whether it's buying a house or raping somebody, if you tried to buy a house the way he's buying a house, you wouldn't be allowed to do it. Every society's got an aristocratic group that breaks all the laws and does what it wants. Like the royal house in England. They can commit all adultery they want. It's just a gang of adulterers for 300 years. Ordinary people aren't allowed to do that, but the royalty can do that. doesn't matter. They're just rich people who live in a glitzy sewer. But it doesn't matter, because they're royalty. Well, biblical law puts everybody on the same basis under law. There may be variations of wealth, variations of position in society, but the law makes them all the same. That was the great thing about Cromwell. He put the king under law. Most of the English people have never forgiven him for doing that. And the righteous in England have always honored him for doing it. That's what we're moving to here, and part of the rest of the story in Genesis is to set us up for that, to show us why it's needed. And next time next time you read through the law, notice how much of it has to do with talking about brothers, or people dwelling together, or people being in the same place, or if your brother does this, or if your near relative does that. The Leveret Law is written in such a way, if brothers live together and one brother dies, one of the unmarried brothers takes her up as a wife, Well, that's trading on something that happens in Genesis 38 where Judah is supposed to do that with his sons. He doesn't do it right. But what it does, what all of the law does is it puts the family under law so that family strife and family conflict, brother to brother, inheritance problem, is all settled by law. How's the inheritance done? Well, one son gets a double portion and all the rest get single portions and that's just there. That's the way it is. The father doesn't do right by it, why you can go to the elders of the gate and force him to do it. So the father cannot play favorites in such a way as to create a bunch of strife that's going to spread out into society. Now ultimately, this is just external. You've got to have changed hearts. So since people aren't perfect, law is a good thing to have alongside with, uh, changed hearts. So that's part of what we're moving to here, to show the importance of law in society. God is concerned with societies as well as individuals, and to show why the next stage in history is Mount Sinai. The law is not ultimately able to do what it's supposed to do. It keeps failing, and that's why the gospel, that shows us the need for the gospel. But uh, the law does do many good things, and it provides social order. And we're going to have a time of chaos to show us that we need social order. So that was the point that I didn't get to make last week. I wanted to make it this week. We'll come back to it along the way as we go. But just setting up what the next part of this narrative has to do with, I want to put that out. Now, we will just go to the last section of this story, which is chapter 27, verse 46 to 28, 9. And I'm going to read it. 2746 to 289 And Rivkah said to Yitzchak, I loathe my life because of these Hittite women. Should Yaakov take a wife from the Hittite women like these, from the women of the land? Why should I have life? And Yitzchak called Yaakov, and he blessed him, and he commanded, saying to him, You are not to take a wife from the women of Canaan. Arise and go to the country of Aram to the house of Bedouel, your mother's father, and take yourself a wife from there, from the daughters of Levan your mother's brother. And may God Shaddai bless you, and may He make you bear fruit and make you many, so that you become a host of people. And may He give you the blessing of Abraham, to you and to your seed with you, for you to inherit the land of your sojournings, which God gave to Abraham. The Yitzchak, sent Yaakov, off, he went to the country of Aram to Levan, son of Betuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rifkah, the mother of Yaakov, and Asav. Now Asav saw that Yaskak had given Yaakov farewell blessing, and had sent him to the country of Aram to take a wife for himself from there. And when he had given him a blessing, he commanded him, saying, You're not to take a wife from the women of Canaan. And Yaakov had listened to his father and his mother and had gone to the country of Aram. And Asab saw that the women of Canaan were bad in the eyes of Yiscach, his father. And Asab went to Yishmael and took Mahalath, daughter of Yishmael, son of Abraham, sister of Neviot, in addition to his wives, as a wife. So there you are. Read in Hebrew. Now, let's remind ourselves, since it's been so many weeks of where we are in this passage, we're down at the end of it now. We started with Esau's evil marriages. We're going to end with Esau's evil marriage. Esau had bad wives. They made life miserable for Isaac and Rebekah. Isaac decides to instruct Esau to go make the food. Rebekah instructs Jacob to go make the food. Isaac meets with Jacob. And then at the center of the story, Isaac is caught in his sin. Then Isaac meets with Esau. Then Rebekah tells Jacob again to get ready to pack up and leave town. Now we find Isaac instructing Jacob matching the instruction of Esau and then ending again with Esau's evil marriages. commit polygamy again. Esau one of these pathetic guys that keeps looking around and trying to figure out ways to please the people in authority and managing to get it wrong every time. Because he doesn't have any moral center. He can't discern what's really going on. I mean, the last thing he needed was another wife. That doesn't solve any problems. Now the passage that we're actually on today has a nice structure too. We just read it. Starts with bad wives, ends with bad wives. In chapter 28 verse 1, Isaac says, Don't take a wife from the women of Canaan. In 28, 6 to 7, Esau saw that he had said, Don't take a wife from the women of Canaan. In 28, 2 he says, Get a wife from Aram. In 28.5, he departs for Aram. And then at the center is the covenant blessing. This is nicely structured. Something, again, that if you were in the synagogue and you heard this read every year, two or three times a year, and you were used to listening to this kind of flow and melody, you'd pick up. Oh, yeah, of course, covenant blessings at the center. You'd hear these words. Bom bom bom, 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 bom 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 It would sound like that as you heard the words repeated and the phrases repeated. You notice that this links the last two sections, B prime and A prime, into one section, and suggests that A and B are closely related. We've discussed that before. It's the setup for the entire passage is that it's in the context of the evil Canaanite wives. We're told that first, and then when Isaac determines to give the covenant to Esau, he's giving it to the Canaanites. And that's why the passage is such a crisis. Well, now we can read it. Verse 46. Now we'll read it in English. And Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of these Hittite women. If Jacob should take a wife from the Hittite women, women like these, women of the land, why should I continue to live? Rebecca is the one who pushes Isaac. <laughs> I've got Jacob down here. She pushes Isaac to make sure the covenant continues. That's been her role right along. Ever since Isaac got into sin, Isaac wants to destroy the covenant. He wants to give the covenant over to the Canaanites, to the descendants of Ham, the Hamites. Rebecca has to stop that. Now, Rebecca's got to do something about this marriage thing. She's got to be another Abraham. Abraham was the one who took steps to get a wife for Isaac the first time. Oh, Isaac's just drifting around. He didn't ever do it with Esau. But Rebecca, as the hero woman here, as the female Abraham, she takes the steps to, take, to do it. Of course, she's not the one to do it if Isaac will be willing to. So she goes and tells Isaac to do it. She says she loathes her life and why should she live. That's that death theme in the narrative. We've seen it throughout. Isaac says, oh, I'm about to die. Let's do this. Rebecca says, I can't stand my life. I wish I could blow my brains out if this doesn't stop. And why? Because, and it's not just emotional, it's because she's the mother of the seed and she fears her mission in life has been defeated. And we've commented on that before. Why should I live if the covenant's going to go to these Canaanites? The only reason I came over here was to be married to Isaac. She'd never met Isaac. She she didn't come over to marry Isaac because she was in love with him. She didn't have a videotape of him, she didn't have a photograph of him, she didn't have an audio tape of him, she didn't even have a picture of him, drawn by anybody, probably. So she didn't come over to Mary Isaac because she was in love with him. And Maybe she did it to get away from her brother Laban. <laughs> the more we learn about Laban, the more we can see why Rebecca might have wanted to leave town. And maybe she was impressed by all the wealth. But the way the narrative reads, and we've looked at this before. She's just another Abraham. She wants to go serve God. Well, the whole point of her life is to men to have these children. First of all, she couldn't have any children. Then she got to have children. And she had to live with all of this for years. And she watched Esau become corrupt. If Jacob becomes corrupt too, then what's the point? What's the point of being the mother of the seed? What's the point of being involved in bringing the Messiah into the world if it's all going to be corrupted? So that's really what this is talking about. And the language in this passage hints at it as well. When Isaac says, may you bear fruit, that's right from Genesis 1 and 3, as we'll see in just a sec. When you talk about people bearing fruit, you got to remember, it's trees that bear fruit, and fruit has the seed in it, and that's the way it's all set up in Genesis 1 and 3. At any rate, that's Rebecca's concern. She's concerned for the covenant, and she gets old Isaac to do it. So, verse 1, Isaac called for Jacob and he blessed him and commanded him. And then it's reversed after that. He blessed him and commanded him. And then we have the command, don't take one of these Canaanite women, go to Aram. And then we have the blessing in verse 3, may Al Shaddai bless you. So, just very often in the Bible, A-B-B-A, sometimes it's a nice chiasm with equally matched passages and sometimes it's just a setup. Sometimes it's the other way. Sometimes it's, Bless and command, then you read the blessing, then you read the command. In this case, it's bless, command, then we have the command, then we have the blessing. just wanted to point that out to you because as you read the Bible, just be alert to that because very often you'll have a a statement that sets up the narrative that follows and has something to do with outlining it. Well, Isaac finally follows in the footsteps of Abraham in verse 2. He finally does what Abraham did. Arise and go to the country of Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take yourself a wife from there, from the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. Well, that's what Abraham had commanded his servant to do. Go to my land and to my kindred and get a wife for my son Isaac. And then that's the phrasing in chapter 24. Here it's more specific. But it's what Abraham did. And Isaac hasn't done that up to now. He didn't do it with Esau. If Esau was the favored son who was supposed to receive the covenant, that's what he should have done with Esau, he didn't do it. Now he's finally acting like Abraham because Rebecca's gotten him to do so. And then he says, may El Shaddai bless you. Now we want to spend a moment here on El Shaddai. word El Shaddai, the word El means the mighty one. Elohim is plural of El and we translate that as God. That's the best way to translate it. It's the kind of neutral word in the Bible that means God, the supreme being. El, by itself, means a great power. And mighty one is usually the stress in context. El Shaddai, from the way it's used, means the mighty one who promises. Or the mighty one who initiates the future. I say that because nobody knows what Shaddai means. Some scholars have run around Akkadian and other languages and said well maybe it has to do with mountains the God who's like a mountain or the God who dwells on a mountain but that doesn't have anything to do with the context in which we find it if we found it in passages that said Abraham went up on a high mountain and there El Shaddai met with him and uh, then it said Jacob went up on a mountain and there El Shaddai met with him and we might say El Shaddai means the God who dwells on a mountain or is like a mountain But that's not the context. The context is always you will have seed and a great future. Every time this name is used, that's what God says. So whatever the word Shaddai's root may be, the way it's used is the God who promises and guarantees the future. Let's just look at them real quick. We can get a... Useful theme to bear in mind because it's coming up right here. Jacob is starting his life. Now that he's received the promise, now that he's been baptized, he's starting his life at the age of 77. Chapter 17, verse 1. It's the first time this occurs. When Abram was 99 years old, Yahweh was seen by Abram and said to him, I am El Shaddai. Walk in my presence and be perfect. I make my covenant with you. And he says, Here's my covenant, and you will be a father of a throng of nations. <laughs> no longer will you be Abram, rather your name will be Abraham, for I will make you Gaim, father of a throng of nations. I will cause you to bear fruit exceedingly. Exceedingly. I will make nations out of you. Kings will come out of you. I will establish my covenant between you and your seed after you throughout their generations as a covenant for the ages. To be to you and your seed after you. And I will give to you to your seed after you. This is my, you keep my covenant. You and your seed after you throughout generations. Then you get the circumcision thing. Which means, if you're going to have a future, you've got to cut off the past. Circumcision, among its many meanings, means, if you're going to have a future, you've got to cut off the past. In this context, that's really the stress. Notice that your seed. That's already a future idea. After you. Down to generations. Multiply you. It's all future stuff. The God who makes future promises and guarantees them. Well, that's what's happening here. May God, I bless you. Make you bear fruit. Make you many so that you become an assembly of people. To you and your seed with you. To inherit the land of your sojournings. Future stuff. And then in 35.11, listen to it again. This is God's appearance to Jacob at the end of this narrative. Jacob is your name. Your name will be Israel. He called his name Israel, verse 11. God said further to him, I am El Shaddai. Bear fruit and be many. Nations, yes, a host of nations will come out from you. Kings will go forth from your loins. The land I will give to you and to your seed. After you I will give the land. And God went up from him. And he named the place Bethel. Well, that's the second Bethel incident. And we'll get to it pretty quick here. All this future stuff. forty-three, fourteen. These are all the occurrences of El Shaddai in Genesis. The name only occurs six times in the book of Genesis. You know, we're so used to it. We think, oh, it must be all over the place. Well, it's not. God only said it once to Abraham. Jacob is the one who uses it all the rest of the time. Well, Isaac uses it to Jacob and then Jacob picks it up and gives it to Joseph 43 verse 14 when Jacob sends the brothers down to Egypt and sends Benjamin along with them listen to how he phrases it take your brother as for your brother take him arise and return to this man who we know is Joseph may all Shaddai give you mercy before the man so he releases your other brother to you and Benjamin as well as for me if I must be bereaved I must be bereaved That's negative, but it has to do with the future too. His sons, his children. If I'm going to lose them, I'm going to lose them. But may El Shaddai preserve my children. The name of the God who preserves the children. The God who takes care of children. El Shaddai. 48 verse 3. This is when Jacob blesses Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Jacob said to Joseph, El Shaddai was seen by me in Luz in the land of Canaan. He blessed me and he said to me, Behold, I will make you bear fruit, make you many, I will make you into an host of peoples, an assembly of people. I will give this land to your seed after you for the ages. And now two sons are born to you. And now I claim them as mine, Ephraim and Manasseh. Let them be mine just as Reuben and Simeon are mine. Your begotten sons whom you beget after them... Let them be yours. So most important passage. Do you know that? even Manasseh were adopted by Jacob and became his sons, and their sons are considered sons of Joseph. You know that, That's what it says. But it's all future stuff here. And then finally, in 49:25, he's blessing Joseph in the blessing section here. By your father's God may He help you, and Shaddai may he give you blessing, blessings of the heavens, blessings of the ocean. Blessings of the breasts and the womb. Future stuff. May blessings of your father transcend the blessings of mountains eternal. Hills without age. See, there's some of the mountain stuff there. They can go to that one verse. But, it's again, future stuff. Well, if we look at Exodus chapter 6 verse 3, we've got a final take on this. You remember the passage. It's when God says to Moses, I am Yahweh, I was seen by Abraham, by Isaac, and by Jacob as El Shaddai. But by my name Yahweh, I wasn't known to them. That doesn't mean they didn't use the word, it means they didn't understand the meaning of it. I established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their sojournings which they sojourned. And I have heard the groaning of the children of Israel whom Egypt is holding in servitude, and I have called to mind my covenant. Therefore, say to the children of Israel... Now, this is the meaning of Yahweh. Notice how it contrasts. Shaddai is the God who makes promises. You can trust him because he's mighty. He's El. The mighty promiser. Yahweh is the God who keeps promises. I am Yahweh. I'm going to bring you out beneath the burdens of Egypt, and I will rescue you from servitude and redeem you. I will take you from me as a people and I will be your God, and you will know that I am Yahweh your God who brings you out from the bondage of Egypt. I will bring you into the land that I swore to my oath that I would give it as a possession because I am Yahweh. In other words, I'm going to do what I promised 400 years ago and kept promising. Yahweh is the God who keeps promises. Shaddai is the God who makes promises. So here it is, the promise making God. And I've pointed out, well, a couple of other things here now that we understand it, the mighty one who makes promises. Remember that Jacob is the one who is perfect. So, God says to Abraham in 17.1, I am Shaddai, walk before me and be perfect. 25.27, Jacob is a perfect man, so the name Shaddai is appropriate for him. And then, I'm not going to reread these again, but the last two verses in Genesis we read, that name is specifically passed to Joseph and for the same reason. Joseph is the perfect son. The other ones weren't, they murdered him. Reuben slept with his father's concubine. Simeon and Levi disgraced the covenant by using circumcision to murder people with. And the other sons went along with all this stuff. Joseph is the perfect son, so El Shaddai goes to him and he receives more of the promises than anybody else. Specifically the promises of being multiplied and receiving land. See, Judah gets this promise of being the king. The king will come from Judah. But Joseph gets specifically the promises that are in Genesis which concern land and myriads of people. Those go to Joseph. First of all, both of Joseph's sons become sons of Jacob. And then if you follow it on down, the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh have the most people in them and they've got the most land. Here's the land of Palestine here and the Mediterranean Sea. Well, Ephraim has this whole block of territory here. Manasseh's got all this. And you've got these other little tribes up here Zebulun, and you've got Reuben and part of Gad over here, and you've got Benjamin here, and a little bit of Dan here, and Judah here, and Simeon here. But these are the two biggies. They got most of the land, they got most of the people. Read the numberings of the people, and when you put them together and see that they're both Joseph, add them up, they got way more than everybody else. So El Shaddai, the God who promises land and seed, is given to Joseph. And it comes true. And it's passed to Joseph because Joseph was a perfect man. He came to Jacob because Jacob was a perfect man. Isaac didn't really get to have it. God didn't appear to Isaac and say, I am El Shaddai. Because Isaac had messed it up. But he appears to Jacob and says it. Now the language here, it says, may he make you bear fruit. You know, we're so used to the fact that that's an English idiom. It's also a Hebrew idiom. When it says bear fruit in your Bible, the word for fruit is there in Hebrew. That's not just a translation. And it goes right back to Genesis 1 where you've got all this talk about seeds seeding seeds and trees fruit bearing fruit and the commands about fruit on the trees and then the statement that the seed of the woman, the woman there is compared to a tree who has fruit, her children are her fruit, her seed, the seed is in the fruit. This is all Genesis language. So, it's pointing out the original command to Adam, be fruitful, and that's what it is in Hebrew. Fruit is there. Par, the word for fruit. May you be fruitful and multiply. Well, here it is. Bear fruit and make you many. Pretty much the same thing said to Adam. And when you talk about fruit, you are talking about seed. So, the seed of the mother idea, the original purpose of the human race is going to be fulfilled here. And that's what all these covenants are about to bring about the original purpose of the human race. And then it says, so that you may become a host of peoples. Now, when you read that, we're used to the God of hosts, Yahweh of hosts, Lord of hosts in the Bible. That word hosts, sabayot, means armies. This is not the word sabayot. The word kahal, which means an assembly. May you become an assembly of peoples. It's the word that lies behind the New Testament word "eklesia." That you may know means church. May you become a church of peoples. That wouldn't be quite right because assembly is a bit more than that. This is the first time in the Bible this word has showed up. This is distinctive new language. And in 35.11 and 48.4 are the next two places it occurs and both of those are places where El Shaddai occurs. Look back up the middle of the page. The third... Verse under the El Shaddai thing is 35.11. It also has this word assembly. And the next one down is 48.3. And in 48.4 we've got this word assembly. So Shaddai is one who creates a future assembly of people. Well, if you follow that down through, you'll find that the assembly is at Mount Sinai. That's where this word starts to show up a lot. Let my people go that they may have an assembly to me at Mount Sinai. If El Shaddai is the God who promises the future. What he's promising is a future assembly of peoples, which is a worship assembly. Now, kahal assembly is also used for other kinds of assemblies, but it's very often used for worship assemblies and gatherings for worship. And I think that's the overtone here. If I was going to paraphrase this, it would be, May you... Make you bear fruit and make you many so that you become a worshiping host of people. God is seeking worshipers first of all. You know, it says that in the book of John. The Father seeks worshipers. He isn't seeking people to run for office, first of all. He's not seeking for composers of music, first of all. He's seeking worshipers, first of all. That is implied here because this word, kahal, as you trace it through, It's Shaddai who makes the kahal. When we get into Exodus, he says, I used to be Shaddai, now I'm going to be Yahweh, and I'm assembling all of you people in fulfillment of my command and promise. I'm not going to assemble you up out Sinai, and you're going to worship me. So all this assembly language and Shaddai language is moving toward worship. I think that's the main thing that's being spoken of here. Not a military host, but an assembly. That's why I took my pencil, and I changed a host to an assembly, preferable much preferable translation. Really a church. And then he says in verse 4, this is common enough, May he give you the blessing of Abraham to you and to your seed with you for you to inherit the land of your sojournings which God gave to Abraham. The word Abraham here shows up twice. It didn't show up at all in chapter 27. The first time Isaac gave the blessings to Esau and Jacob, he didn't even use the word Abraham because he was alienated from the continuity of the covenant. But now... Jacob is the new Abraham. He's going to receive the blessing of Abraham. And Jacob is the replacement for Isaac. Isaac was supposed to be the new Abraham. Isaac started out okay, being just like Abraham in Gerar, dealing with Abimelech. Then he blew it, messing up with his sons. And so now, Jacob comes to be the new Abraham. Jacob has to go deal with Gentiles. And he'll succeed. Then he's got to deal with sons, and that's going to be hard. But he's got to do what Abraham did in a bigger way. But he's the new Abraham. Rebecca sees to this. She's the female Abraham. Since Isaac didn't want to be a good Abraham, Rebecca had to be the Abraham. Isaac did okay in Gerar. He was Abraham there. But when it came to his sons, Rebecca had to step in and be the Abraham. Now Jacob is the Abraham. So, verse 5, Isaac sent Jacob off and went to Aram, to Laban the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebecca, the mother of Jacob and Esau. I don't know why this is repeated here. This is exactly what we read few verses earlier why give us all this information i'm going to hazard a guess if you put these names out in order laban bethuel rebecca jacob and esau and if you do them as a chiasm laban is linked with esau <laughs> which is quite true to the narrative rebecca's at the center which is true to the narrative and bethuel being the father in these verses is who Jacob is going to be. So maybe that's why it's repeated and maybe that's why the words are found in this order. Remember, this was to be read out loud and people would have heard these names like notes of music in the air. We're not capable of hearing this way. We haven't grown up hearing this way. You and I didn't grow up eating dog. And we didn't grow up listening to Indian sitar music. That doesn't sound right to us. And we didn't grow up hearing the text this way but if we had hearing these five names this way might have rung bells and we might have seen something like this maybe maybe not don't know I don't know I just try my best now verses 6 to 9 Esau tries to imitate Jacob and I've given you the Esau stuff here interesting verse 7 says and he saw that Jacob had listened to his father and mother and gone to the country of Aram Esau saw the women of Canaan were bad in the eyes of Isaac. His father doesn't say anything about his mother. previous verse said, Listen to father and mother. And we know that the women were bad in the eyes of Rebekah. In fact, that's been the primary stress. It says that they were a grievance to Isaac and Rebekah. Rebecca is the one who says, I can't stand this anymore. Let me out of here. These women are driving me crazy. And yet... The text says Esau only perceived they were agreements to his father. He doesn't really care about what his mother thinks. That's part of his sin. That's just hinted here. I can't prove that out of this verse. But surely the entire narrative has something to do with it. The man doesn't respect his mother. He respects his father, but not his mother so much. Well, Esau imitates Jacob. He goes to a near relative, in this case Ishmael. Ishmael is... Born again, Ishmael is a covenant member in the secondary sense. He's a Gentile God-fearer. He marries one of the daughters of this man. Maybe this woman was a lot better than the other two wives. Don't know. Bible doesn't say. But it does say, in addition to his wives. didn't have to say that, but it does. And I think it puts that phrase in there to remind us that this is a sin of polygamy. And the Bible does not smile on polygamy anywhere. Leviticus 18.18 forbids it, but it's also forbidden by implication in Genesis 2. For this cause a man cleaves to his wife. When you cleave to one wife, you can't get involved with any others. Cleave means stick. It'd be kind of hard to commit adultery if your wife was stuck to you you visit another woman and your wife is attached to you and you're dragging her along, adultery would be pretty much impossible. So it's polygamy. You're stuck. Monogamy is there from the beginning. And that's what Jesus says. We've discussed this before. If you commit polygamy, it's like chopping off your hand. You don't get your hand back. If you commit polygamy, you've got to take care of all these wives. And so now Esau does. But this was not the right way to resolve the problem. I mean... (laughs) He should have just tried to deal with the wives and children that he had instead of going and getting another one. This didn't make the situation any better. It just meant there was more conflict and tension in his household that Isaac and Rebekah had to live with. But there's something else. The polygamy here is to be contrasted with Jacob's polygamy later on. Jacob, I'm going to argue, is innocent of any sin in polygamy because he's legally married to one woman and he's sexually married to the other. He's tricked into it. He's got them both. It wasn't a deliberate choice on his part. Esau's is. And now one final note. and You can look this up later because time has flowed away, but it's all here. we got three wives now so far. Judith, Basimath, and Mahalath. The word Bath means daughter of in Hebrew like Ben means son. The TH sound at the end of a word indicates a feminine plural or an exalted feminine form. And the AH ah sound it's just feminine singular judith bath berry the hittite basimath bath or daughter of alan the hittite and Mahalath bath ishmael those are the names we have now now later on in chapter 36 these chicks are given different names we have another list of three wives and some people have thought well maybe these are other wives maybe he had five or six maybe the many different sources behind us that are confused I don't think so. I think we're supposed to understand he had three wives, but they had different names. Aholabama, daughter of Anna the Hivite, Ada the daughter of Elan the Hittite, and Basimath, the daughter of Ishmael. Well, this is confusing, but we can solve without too much trouble. Taking the last one first, Mahalath, which means mild, is also... Basimath means fragrant. She's the daughter of Ishmael. I don't think he married two different daughters of Ishmael. So it's just the same woman has the same names. Basimath, meaning fragrant, is also Ada, meaning apparently something like an ornament or a cutie pie. Daughter of Elon. He probably didn't marry two different daughters of Elon, So it's probably the same girl called different names. The toughie is Judith, but it's not quite so tough if you understand what these words mean. Judith seems to be a holobama. Judith means Jewess. Well, the word Jew doesn't exist at this point in history. So if she had this name... It meant something else. And I'll suggest what it means in just a minute. In fact I probably should not have caused it that. Let's just change that. I'm gonna change this in the notes and when I print them out again. Judith means praise. So does Judah. And that's important. A holy Bible means my high place tent. Well that sounds like the name of the temple prostitute. A woman that you encounter in the high place, and if her name was praise, having to do with the praise of a pagan god, that would be the same kind of name. Barry the Hittite isn't necessarily a name at all. It means the Hittite well man. guy associated with wells. And Anna the Hivite is probably his actual name and lineage. So this guy's name was probably Anna the Hivite. He was known also as the Hittite well man because the Hittite empire covered this area to some extent. So the Hivites were within it. And then this woman was sometimes called praise and sometimes called high place tent, indicating false religion. Well, two of the names had to do with smells. Esau is like his father following his nose. And I think that's relevant. The names are relevant to the passage. He liked these girls because they smell good. And that's very much connected with the story in Genesis 27 about the food. The other name implies cultic idolatry. And we want to compare that with the sin of Judah in Genesis 38 where Judah goes into a cult prostitute and winds up making her pregnant. Remember that story. And possibly Judith is used here to point to Judah's sin just as a way of anticipation. Don't know for sure. But that's the way you resolve these conflicts and names. That's it for Esau. I don't think we'll even be coming back to him for a long time. But there you are. Let's close in prayer.